And then for the first time in my entire life, I've never done a somersault or cartwheel. I somersaulted backwards down the hill. And when I went around the first time and things were starting to hit my head and that, I was like, okay, what am I going to hit that's going to stop me? And then when I went around the second time, I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm stopping. So I put my arms up to try and protect my head. And I went two or three more times over. And then I landed sitting on my butt on a pile of rocks at the base of the lake. First thing I said, I'm okay. And I wasn't. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? It's almost the holidays. I feel very much like I am dragging my butt across the end of the year. So uh, let's just jump right into the episode and have a little more peace and quiet at the end. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Moira Mabin. Moira is a mom and an educator in British Columbia, Canada. And she'll be adding her show to the ADHD Rewired podcast network in the coming months. In today's episode, Moira shares her story about literally falling off the cliff of perfectionism. She talks about being driven as a kid in school, how her son and daughter contributed to Moira realizing she had ADHD and the binocular vision disorder vertical heterophoria, and how she learned to take care of herself and let herself rest. All right, let's get rolling. So my name is Moira Mabin. Um, I'm a Canadian with late diagnosed ADHD. I was diagnosed uh, three years ago. And my, fam my first family member was diagnosed four years ago. It's been an um, interesting journey because I'm an educator, mostly classroom teacher and special ed, but I also have a research background. So when I learned about my own diagnosis, I started researching and learning a lot more. And what I was shocked by was what I didn't know. That after being an educator for 25 years, I remember my very first conference being about ADHD. Um, I've always been interested in how the brain works and learning about people who learn differently. I thought it was an empath for all those kids who just struggled within the school system. And I didn't understand why other people couldn't figure them out. I didn't realize I was one of them. And I didn't realize how pervasive the challenges with ADHD are in someone's life because it was normalized in my world. The, the bigger issue, I think, was that I had been trying all of these strategies so hard for so long that it was physically and mentally exhausting. And as the school system has changed over the last 25 years, it was harder and harder to help kids when I knew what they needed to have be done to be successful in school. So um, I'm still very passionate about all of those things, um, but I'm really looking to how do I 
use what I know to help myself and my family and the people around me. That's awesome. And not too far from my story in a lot of ways. I never, I never thought I was an empath. I was just like, yeah, I get that kid. I was that kid. Like you can't, you can't pull a fast one on me because I pulled the same fast ones. I made that fast one up. And I know why you're struggling because I struggled for the same reasons. But I also knew I was struggling and shouldn't have been. I, I was one of those kids that was like, he has so much potential and he just can't seem to do the thing. Put me in front of a standardized test and I murder it. Like I crush them. And you put me in front of homework and a regular test. And I'm like, I'm a solid C plus student. Like that was just my entire school. I think I was lucky because I had teachers who knew that I was motivated by challenge. Like when I was in grade two, and, and I know this from when I was going through my diagnosis, some of it I remember, but some of it because we kept everything. My teacher decided in about November that I could be in grade three math. And at that point, it was like, kid, here's the workbook. You catch up to where the grade threes are, and then you can join them. And I like, I loved math until I got to a certain grade where I had a teacher who was extremely disinterested. Like he just wasn't engaged. And by the time I was in junior high, I paid attention to how to work systems. So I would figure out ways to get into the classes with the teachers who were really good, who would engage me. So I've always been motivated by challenge and I've always been interested in learning. I probably owe my science, I know I owe my science ten an teacher an apology because we were horrible to him. So like I had all the things and I was friends with the kids who really struggled within school, but I was just so driven to learn. I was, I've always been a very driven person. I was always very reactive in school. I was like, I didn't game the system in advance. I gamed the system after I screwed up. Oh, I didn't do that lab report, but I can talk my way out of this and convince the teacher that I should get an extension or that I did the lab report and I gave it to him and I'll do it again, I guess, if you want me to, like that kind of stuff. That was sort of my approach. I basically lied my way through middle school. I was good enough so that I could fly under the radar so I could get away with the things because, yeah, there were definitely questionable judgment things, but I was good enough that I didn't get necessarily questioned. Even before this interview started, we were talking about how sometimes good enough is good enough. And perfectionism is not that great, which is not what you're saying, but it's, it's in there. And that's a lesson I've had to learn. Like I, one of the things from yoga, the whole like pushing harder, where is if I come out of a pose and I breathe then it's easier, it's actually easier. So I've definitely learned like taking your foot off the gas can sometimes can be the helpful thing. Oftentimes it is. And you come to me, you come to this show by way of Eric Tivers, who does the whole ADHD rewired. This is part of the ADHD rewired podcast network. And although we're not going to go deep on it in this episode, you're headed to become a part of the ADHD Rewired podcast network. I am. Eric and I were talking in August and I was talking about how I've always seen myself from, again, early on going to conferences and present, seeing myself as a pr presenter. And I've, I've done that in a small form. And we were talking about it and he said, well, that sounds like if you want to have a voice and to a larger audience, that sounds like a podcast. And I was like, what? But he's right, and I'm, I'm ready, and I'm very excited because it's going to be focusing on having an ADHD-friendly lifestyle and things particular to women. And the thing that I realized is for 45 years, I was trying to create an ADHD-friendly lifestyle not knowing what that was because I didn't know I had ADHD. I kept trying all the things. You read the list of the things that work for people with ADHD that are not medication. Those were the things I was trying to do in my life. 
once I got the diagnosis, it was kind of like being given the owner's manual. Mm-hmm. So once I could understand why and what was going on, then it made it much more realistic. And I started working on the all the internalization and the self-worth and the all the things that you think are bad character flaws. You don't know it's ADHD. It's super eye-opening when you get that ADHD diagnosis and then learn about ADHD, right? It's not always the same. Sometimes you get the diagnosis and then you're like, oh, I suck because I have ADHD. I guess I suck. And that's probably no one listening to this podcast because the people listening to the show have likely done the work to learn more about ADHD, at least in pieces. You can't really listen to the show and not have that happen. But getting that definition, I like to say, in not the owner's manual, as you say, I like I like to say that it kind of defines our sandbox, right? Like this is what we're playing in. This is what's going to work. And it's amazing how things make much more sense. Like in my family, it was always the I'll just, like we've all got that. Well, I'll just do this, right? Like I'll just, because we could transition, you couldn't leave to the next thing. Other people would be waiting because I just had, you know, there we had all these things that was normalized and kind of stuck on if it's not working. Prior to recording, another thing you mentioned to me is that you fell off a cliff and broke your back. And my brain. And your brain. (laughs) And a piece of this is related to ADHD and depth perception, potentially. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that depth perception stuff? And then we'll wander into you tumbling down a cliff. Like many people, teenager, got glasses. I was a competitive athlete and they were just, I was treated for astigmatism. And the first time I put glasses on, I was like, whoa, this is like being in a 3D movie. And I had to relearn how to shoot because I didn't have depth perception and I had accommodated for it. So time goes on. I have vision, you know, um, eye surgery, things like that. But you're older, your eyes, you know, your reading starts to go. So my daughter, who has given me permission to talk about her, she was a softball player and this, I know this is a, how did we get from cliff to softball, but softball player. And all of a sudden one season, she starts like, she's a pitcher, but she can't hit the ball. And she's swinging at these things that are like ridiculous. And I thought, what is going on here? And we, you know, got her eyes checked every year. So we went back and she had developed, um, uh, her eyes weren't working together and they were converging. And so that, that eye doctor was like, well, you need to have a prism and that's what you do and you can't wear contacts. And that was sort of the end of it. So her being an athlete led me to talk to other people that I knew, which led us to an eye doctor who's a specialist who did this assessment with her and was talking about how some of her vision things could make it look like she had ADHD or were related to her ADHD. And so I was kind of skeptical the way that she was talking about it, but basically she has it and I have it and it's called vertical heterophoria. And a lot of people with ADHD have it. And unless you see a specialized um, eye doctor, it's hard to diagnose. And it's a binocular vision disorder that the eyes are misaligned and can cause issues that don't immediately present. And so your eyes don't look off, but you may be getting headaches. You may bump into things. You may misjudge uh, where something is, open a cupboard, take out, like I've done this, take out something out of the cupboard and it drops on the floor because I thought I was, you know, navigating the world properly. Just feeling like you're clumsy. 
And what I learned is as you get older, your brain and your vision gets more tired for trying to correct for it. So as you stand up from a seated position, you might feel a bit dizzy or loss of balance. Moving your head around from side to side can become more challenging. Um, riding in the passenger seat of the car, which was one that had come up for me, rounding curves in a car make you feel not very good. And you also start to get shoulder, head, and neck and pain symptoms. The thing that drove me to figuring this out and getting help for it is that when you don't get treated for it, as you age, it starts to look like Meniere's disease. So you start getting vertigo, you start getting nausea, you start getting vomiting, and it just comes on suddenly and for no reason. And I know two women who experience that, both more than likely have ADHD. So just that notion. So my daughter has been going for vision therapy, and I've been doing some of her things because I'm, I can't go for it right now due to my, my back but it is correctable. So you can get glasses that have prisms in them. So I have those. And the first time I put them on again, I had a coffee cup in my hand and I was walking and there was a crosswalk. And again, I felt like I was in a 3D movie. It just, I'm blown away how it changes how I see the world. That's awesome. And thank you for sharing that with us because it's something that I know I haven't talked about it in this podcast, but it's important for people to know about because it might matter. It's one of those things that like, probably it doesn't matter, but if it does, it matters a lot and you should know about it. And I know that Renee Brooks is a friend of the show. She's been on the show. Like it's between her and Cameron Gott for the most appearances on this podcast. And she's got an article on black girl lost keys about her having vertical heterophoria. heterophoria? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. It's, I realize it's not that hard. It's just hetero and then phoria. Yeah for you. Yeah. So I'll link to that so that people can get a little more information that way if they're prefer to read. And as a guy who wears glasses, I understand not the vertical hetophoria, I don't think, but I understand that moment when you get them. Cause it's amazing. I, I got mine in high school and I was a paper boy. So I was walking my neighborhoods all the time, delivering papers. I had my glasses and I'm looking around kind of being like, do to do, I can see better. Yay. And then I looked up at a tree that I looked at hundreds of times and like had to stop. I lost like a full minute and a half on my walk, just staring at this tree because I could see the leaves. It wasn't like a big green blur anymore. There were leaves up there that I could see each individual one. And, and we didn't have 3D television back then. So I didn't think of it that way. But with you saying that, I'm like, yeah, that is what that was like. Suddenly being on in a 3D movie or, or seeing a 3D movie. The first time I swam after laser eye surgery and I wore, was wearing goggles, I didn't realize you could see through water. Like you can actually see tiles on the bottom of a pool. I did not know that. Figured out how I figured out I needed glasses is I was turning around to the people behind me to ask what was on the board. And I mm -hmm. thought that was back in the days of chalk. I thought chalk wrote fuzzy because you know, it's dusty. Yeah. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, get your kid's eyes checked or get your own checked depending on what's going on. Circling a little bit more on that pre-conversation we had. Talk to us about falling off a 50 foot cliff oh, yeah. and what that's like. So the, so the eye doctor who I, I saw this for the vertical heterophoria was uh, this last summer. And that was two years after I fell off the cliff. And she said, you know, there's high likelihood that's why. And so, you know, you might want to consider vision therapy or wearing a helmet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
So yeah, the the um, falling off the cliff. Uh, it was it was very interesting. I mean, the whole thing was we were camping. I was I'd had about a year and a half knowledge of like in depth ADHD of learning a lot more about it because of uh, my son. He was the one who was diagnosed first, and thanks to him, he, he's the only reason why anybody else was diagnosed. So I had learned a lot more. I had been diagnosed for about a year. I had been on medication for about six months. It was the end of summer. I'm a teacher thoroughly having a good time. There was a hike I wanted to, it was really a walk I wanted to go on. And we're in the wilderness. We live in BC. I forgot the map. You know, I had the route planned. I forgot the map. There's about eight kids, flip-flops because we're going swimming and three adults. And so we get to the first turn and my husband said, let's go this way. And I knew it wasn't the right way, but it was that doubting. You continually doubt yourself. So I doubted myself. So I'm like, okay. So we didn't get on the route that we wanted to. We were in another campground and I was having a hard time transitioning. I still wanted to get on that route. And so instead of enjoying the walk that we were on, I kept trying to figure out how to get on this route. So I asked somebody like, hey, if we go this way, will it take us down to the lake? And they said, yes. So we went down and it was ended up being, because we were in a very mountainous area, very steep, very narrow and again, there were kids in flip-flops. So three kids just, you know, scampered down as they do. And then there were two kids with flip-flops behind me. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I got this. I'll show them how to like get down low and hold like here. So you're holding on to things. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing that, I hadn't noticed that there was a washout and the trail gave way. And if I'd been standing, I would have just been able to like move my foot over and carry on. But because I wasn't, there was nothing to hold on in front of me. So I put my arm out behind me. And then for the first time in my entire life, I've never done a somersault or cartwheel. I somersaulted backwards down the hill. And when I went around the first time and things were starting to hit my head and that, I was like, okay, what am I going to hit that's going to stop me? And then when I went around the second time, I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm stopping. So I put my arms up to try and protect my head. And I went two or three more times over and then I landed sitting on my butt on a pile of rocks at the base of the lake. Oh. First thing I said, I'm okay. And I wasn't. Everybody else, you know, they came down. So the other adult took the kids. My husband stayed with me. It took a long time. I had to get up. I had to walk out. So most of my injuries we thought were my neck and shoulders. And, um, I, I won't go into detail about the, the getting out, but when we got back to the campground, I had, you know, a shower and took ibuprofen and Tylenol and just kind of laid down and thought, this is actually a good environment to be in because there's no TV, there's no lights, there's no, it's just quiet. We had, we, this was our first summer with a pop-up trailer. So I had a good bed to be in. This was on the Friday. So we stayed camping two more days, but I also hit my head two more times just on things around the campsite. And on the day we were packing up to go home the Sunday morning, that's when I realized, cause I hit my head the set, that time on the door frame of the car and I just started crying. And I said to my husband, I said, I think maybe I've hurt my head. Like I have a concussion. So the very next day on the Monday, I was at the doctor's office and then I went to physio and they kind of gave me the standard you know, give it a week or two, see how it is. So the first week I just kind of was quiet. The second week, 
I was back at work. It was the week before school, trying to participate in Pro-D, including giving a presentation, which is utterly ridiculous. What it turns out is I've actually, I'd actually had two concussions before that, that were undiagnosed. I had one in eight, when I was 18 in a car accident, and I had one when I was 24, I was assaulted in a grocery store. So this was concussion number three. And it actually took me four months to fully disengage from work and just to heal because I really needed someone to step in and say, you can't be doing this. But there was nobody, because I'm a keener, right? And I wanted to help. I wanted to do things. They have this program in our, our province where um, it's called work hardening, where you're on medical leave, but you go, it's kind of like a re-entry to work to get used to the environment. So someone else is supposed to be doing our job. Well, at my school, we were just treating it like, well, Moira can work quietly in the corner on files. Like I was still writing IEPs and having IEP meetings, going home and like throwing up. And so each week I was like, nope, that didn't work. Got to take it back a notch. So the recovery was slow. I honestly, I think I'm still recovering. I think my brain healed. It took about a year to heal. I had to increase my ADHD medication. About five months after the accident, I was spending all my time just trying to control my thoughts because I had so many of them and it was making my head hurt. Is this where you start to learn how to navigate the perfectionism? Because that's what that is, right? That like, oh, I'll just do this then. And I'll just work it at this tier until I find out that I can't work at this tier. And then I'll knock it back as opposed to, and needing someone to say to you, like, you tumble down a 50 foot cliff. You should go to the doctors right now. You should like ratchet back work. If you're going home and vomiting, that all sounds like symptoms of perfectionism to me. Oh, completely. So is this where you start to deal with that? Not start, but I really, I really get it. Like that weekend we were still camping. My biggest concern was I had sunglasses that I love that I'd gotten six months ago that were prescription and I had lost them in the tumble down. So we actually went back and somebody like dug through dirt and found them. And that was like, it was the final, like looking back again. So third concussion didn't know I had mono at 18 like I have had things, I've had shingles, I've had an, I have an autoimmune disease. I've had things that have been like, my body's going, hello, you, you can't do this to it. And each time I would withdraw, I would heal or get better. And then I would gradually, and think I'd learned the lesson and gradually start going back. This time I, I was like, it didn't happen because of that. It didn't happen because I was overdoing things, but I can't do this again. I cannot have my whole life stop. So whatever it is going forward, it has to work. It has to be healthy. My mom had cancer at 50. My dad passed away from asbestos cancer at 58. I'm almost 49. I want to be around and I want to be healthy and strong. I have to pay attention to this. So you've literally fallen off the cliff of perfectionism. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're, that you're slowing down and taking the lessons from this that you need to take from it. Cause just the fact that you tumbled down a 50 foot cliff and then didn't immediately go somewhere, that level of drive and perfectionism, that's gotta be playing a role. I know how to fall. Like I fall with the greatest of ease because I'm a trained martial artist, right? So I legit know how to fall. 
practiced it a lot. But if I fell down a 50 foot cliff and tumbled backwards the whole time, I would be like, there's no way I'm okay. That can't be true. <laughs> I might feel okay, but I don't think I am. We're wrapping up this camping trip. I'm going to go get looked at. It sounds like your sort of drive and your perfectionism kind of are combining here to make you push yourself harder than you need to. Definitely. And also not putting myself first. Like that whole putting the oxygen mask on first. I, I realized that I had learned because a year ago I did a gradual return to work when I was kind of healed. And so I got to December and was like, yes, I'm good. Like I'm healed. I went to the gym every day over the, over the winter break from school. I literally woke up probably January 2nd. And that's when my back was like, yeah, no, you're, you're not done. I'd had this disc degeneration, but I guess it just sort of had stayed okay, but then it wasn't anymore. And so from January to April, I was in chronic and increasing pain from my S1 nerves. I had really bad sciatica, was pinched. And to speed up the whole process, I was slated for surgery and it was going to be next May, but then I got a call that it was going to be in October. I went back to work. And where we live, we actually went back, schools opened in, in June. And so we were all there in June, all the teachers, but there was only like 5% of the kids. So then over the summer, they kept changing what they were doing. And at the last minute, they're like, oh yeah, everybody's going back to school and you all have to be there. So I started going and it was a concrete floor. Like it just, and they, I was supposed to have all these accommodations. I was supposed to have like a ergonomic desk. I was supposed to have a standing mat, like an sorry, ergonomic chair and a standing desk. And, and the district hadn't gotten any of that. So I made it through two weeks. And then I talked to my doctor about how I was feeling. And she said, well, I'm surprised you went back. And I thought, well, why didn't you tell me that? I'm like, I need people to tell me that I need people to say like, what are you thinking? Because if I had continued to work, I would have gone into my surgery exhausted, barely getting by. And so I was, I stopped. And so I actually, when I was hearing the conflict in my own voice, when I was talking to my doctor about whether or not to stop working, I remembered that it took me four months, two years ago to fully pull back. And so I just walked away. I was like, yep. I went in one morning to work, did all the handing out of things, took the things home that I wanted. And yeah, it takes persistence and time, I think, for people with ADHD to really make change and support. So I had that. So I was able to do that. It sounds like one of the lessons you've learned from this is how to stop and take care of yourself and give yourself some rest. Oh, completely. Because I didn't realize, again, until probably the last year, I don't know how to fully relax unless I'm lying down. Because my whole approach to dealing with ADHD when I didn't know I had ADHD was I was going to get everything done. Everything, right? I was going to be on top of everything, figure it all out. Like powered by anxiety. It's going to be great. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What are some other lessons you've learned from this whole ordeal? You have to put yourself first. Um, have to shut down those negative self-talk in your head. Just not give it any room or space. How do you shut that down? Well, I've done some work with, do you know, zones of regulation? Yep. Okay. So the, there's an inner critic and an inner coach, right? They talk about that and, and how you talk to, um, if you had a coach coaching you and a critic criticizing, um, how both of those are different. And then thinking about 
what are the things that are being said in your head? Basically, are they helpful or are they hurtful? And trying to change it. Another one that's worked really well for me is um, if it was a child. If it was a child, would I speak to it that way? If I was, or little me, and also uh, doing things for my future self, Mm -hmm. right? So helping out my future self. And I'm really motivated to, because I have two kids with ADHD, to modeling. I was listening to the episode you did with Seth on resistance lately. And, and it talking about catching them, like all of that is just so key, catching them when they're being good. And so starting to try and cultivate that habit within yourself as well. And the verbalizing. I was reminded when I listened really that about you saying about to um, having your kids, you use the example of uh, not hitting siblings mm-hmm. and sharing when they're, when they've done that we do, we do some of that, but I think for my son, if I say to him, you know, you just, can you let us know when you're like holding yourself back from doing something, he's going to love that. And he really needs that. Yeah. It's weird at first. So be ready for the kid to be like, what that's, huh? We you crazy, we have, but it works in the long run. We have a story of about four years ago. It's not even really a story. It's just, um, we were having dinner and somebody wanted a sausage and I just wanted to throw it down the table at them. And I told them that, like, I just, you know, cause it would just, and they could get it, um, <laughs> but it would be entertaining. So I, I do more of that. So that's a big motivating piece for me. I just don't want life to be hard. That's the thing. I, and it doesn't have to be. Interestingly, I was not going to say that. I was going to say, but it has to be. Life has to be hard. There's no scenario where life isn't going to be hard. The trick is to get stronger. Because stuff is going to happen that's going to be harder than you than you think you can handle. But then you got you to gotta get stronger so you can handle it. But where were you going? Where I was going is, yes, there's hard parts in life. And I don't want to shy away from that because it does build resilience. Right. I, I completely agree with that. But I do think that there's different ways that we can do things that don't take as much out of us. So it's more about creating the reality that works more for you than one that is less. Yeah, I get you. It doesn't have to be hard all the time. Exactly. But it's going to be hard and you've got to be ready for that. For sure. I think we're kind of meeting in the middle. I'm just looking at it from a different perspective than you are, which is normal. That's how this works. I, I think I have a really good explanation of that. I've, yeah. So my husband's a businessman and you know, very different system than being an educator in the public school system. And I have talked many years about waiting, wanting retirement as soon as I can. And with the shifts that I'm making in my life, I said to him, you know, if I make these shifts, I'm not looking to retire as soon as I can, because the goal of retiring would be then to be able to focus more on the things that I love to do. And so what I'm trying to do now is create a work and create a situation and a lifestyle that I can sustain and it does make me happy. And so that I don't have this at 58, I'm out because I've got a life that I want to keep doing. I completely agree. You should, we should make the automatic parts of our life, the mandatory necessary automatic parts of our life as easy as possible. And then once we've got that, we should seek out challenge in order to temper ourselves for when things get hard that we can't control. That's sort of my perspective on stuff. Like don't shy away from things being hard, build up that resilience 
so that you're ready when those challenging things happen. That totally makes sense. And I, and I get that because I know that there's lots of people with ADHD who get into the freeze, right? And get into the paralyzed. And, you know, whereas for me, that's like, no, we just like, like the Hulk's like, hello, Hulk smash through. Like, oh, my son did want me to tell you that one night last week where he was not eating dinner, which is a big issue. Food is a big issue. He was sitting there and his dad and I were like, you know, we're getting on like this is an hour. Dinner started an hour ago. And so we're starting to like get at him. And and he told us to stop because he was trying to climb his wall of awful nice. and um, and that we just needed to relax. Yeah. And so he's he's 11 turning 12. Sometimes I refer to him as a teenager because sometimes he is. But yeah, that's awesome. Yay. I wish my kids would use the wall of awful, but they don't. It's like, cause I made it up. They're yes, not okay. You, yeah, they can't do yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. They like the videos that I did with Jessica and they like the concept, but they're not willing to put up with me saying anything about it. <laughs> um, although that was true a few years ago, maybe I should revisit it. Maybe that'll help. And with that said, just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? If you're a woman with ADHD, there's a whole lot about how hormones play into, uh, you're probably gonna get tired. I bring it up every time we're together on something, but, um, it was really shocking for me to learn about that. And that, um, uh, where you are in your cycle, where you are in your life stage, uh, can it impact how you're dealing with it? And just that, uh, thank you for having me on. And I really look forward to coming back and talking about my podcast. That's going to be starting in January, looking at what do we need to do to have this ADHD friendly lifestyle? I know you talk about it on hard mode, right? It is life on hard mode, but there are things we can do to make it less hard sometimes and hopefully more often than not. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.